Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome. Um, it's Casey Cover, and I'm your host on Training with Casey. Thank you, Joseph, for the introduction and for all you do for us. It's really appreciated. And tonight, let's talk about managing reinforcers. Managing reinforcers magically. Now, When we talk about reinforcers, we're getting into dangerous territory. And it's dangerous for a lot of reasons. Talking about reinforcers and diminishers, we are in territory where people have a hard time being logical. They tend to uh, just... You know, their needs to control things come out, their projections on what animals want and how they think come out. And people get really messed up. So let's let's see if we can maybe make it easier for some people. Let's start with a definition of reinforcer and diminisher. A reinforcer is a stimulus that increases the frequency, not the probability, the frequency of a targeted behavior. Targeted in this sense of an intended behavior, not, you know, other behaviors that just happen to be affected. But we have a behavior that we want to increase And so we strategically apply reinforcers so that the behavior, the reinforcer immediately follows, increases in frequency. So I hear, and even Skinner said it, Skinner said, a reinforcer increases the probability. No, no, Skinner came right out and said, we can't talk about rewards because A reward implies that we know how the animal thinks about something, and we don't. All we can do is count or measure the behavioral response. In other words, the increase in frequency of the behavior. You cannot measure an increase in probability. You can only measure an increase in frequency. So guess what? We don't even know for sure if we have a reinforcer. We think we do. We project that what we offer the animal will be a reinforcer. We don't know till after the fact if it functioned as a reinforcer. Now, before we get too far afield, let's talk about the definition of a diminisher, a reinforcer increases the frequency of the behavior it immediately follows. A diminisher decreases the frequency of the behavior it immediately follows. Exactly the same definition 
but one increases and one decreases the behavior. So I mentioned we have to look at frequency. It's the only logical thing to do because you don't know what the probability is until it's expressed as a frequency. A probability is an unexpressed number. It's a potential. It's a trend that happened in the past, but it is not a fact about what did happen as a result of the last stimulus that we intended to be a reinforcer. Now, this careless thinking about reinforcers and diminishers extends into other things that people say about them. Mm. Oh, these stories just get longer and longer. Okay, let's take a look at the definition again. A stimulus that increases the frequency, not the probability, of the behavior it immediately follows. That is a very important clause. It's the contingency requirement. Ogden Lindsay is the one who spelled this out. And it is very important. And you don't get to get sloppy about it. Because guess what? We have to be able to look at our effect on behaviors, at specific behaviors that we are trying to change. It isn't good enough to say, oh yeah, we increase the frequency of behaviors. No, it has to be a specific behavior that we're intending to increase. And so it has to be the behavior that's contingent or right next to the intended reinforcer. So you see how problematic this is because if I say to you, oh boy, I've got some good things. I've got good examples of these from various tests. So, you know, we certify trainers in bridge and target and we cover this subject extensively. So let's talk about some of the places people go really wrong. This is an actual test question from a program in Europe. And the question that was asked is a baby's crying. The mother picks the baby up. Was the behavior reinforced or diminished? Of course, they said punished, but that's a bad choice of a word. Was the behavior reinforced or diminished? Let's say it again. Baby's crying. The mother picks it up. Was the behavior reinforced or diminished? And I think they even said that the baby stopped crying. Can you answer with that information? Can you answer that question with confidence? And if not, why not? We'll give you a few minutes to think about this. 
Yep. Okay. What's your answer? Speak up. Speak up. All right. I'll have to give my answer. You can't answer that. Which behavior are you referring to? The behavior of the babies crying? The behavior of the baby stopping crying? The behavior of the mother picking up the baby? Whose behavior are you talking about? It doesn't even say which being we're focused on. So this was an actual test for a diplomat program was literally in the UK and people had just come from this test and they were all upset about it because they, they didn't know if they gotten the right answer. Well, they can't know. There is no correct answer that anybody could definitely get because the question was not specific enough. There were behaviors that were reinforced. There were behaviors that were diminished and they were with two different individuals. Hmm. We must be very specific. I have seen a published book by a person with a PhD in learning theory, which says a reinforcer is anything that increases the probability of a behavior. Really? Really? Air? Air increases the probability of behavior. If you don't believe me, cut off the air and watch what happens to the behavior. In a certain way, I guess you could say that the sex that the parents engaged in increased the frequency of the behavior for their kid, their offspring. I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it kind of follows in those that illogical pathway. But from a training perspective, is either one of those any use at all? How about air? If you don't have air, your behavior is going to decrease really quick. Water a little less quick. These things aren't useful because... They're either so dangerous to use that we can't use it. We don't even have time to use those um, because we might be killing our animals off if we are not really fast and letting them breathe fast enough or if we, you know, if they need water or something like that. And the behavior of the parents, yeah, it did bring all this other behavior into being but it's of no use at all to manage the behavior of the children. And as trainers, that's what we're concerned with. We're not really concerned with making sweeping generalizations. Well, if the animal has plenty of air and water, and if the parents actually, you know, produce children, that's necessary for them to have more action, then you'll have more actions and the behaviors are reinforced. That's a way to run a training program. 
In a training program, you have specific goals. We need the animal to come when we call. We need the animal to stay on a target while we do a specific veterinary procedure. We need the animal to be able to withstand the temptation to bite. We're not talking anything airy-fairy here. And a good department is likely to know exactly how long those things take. For example, when I was at the University of Maryland and we trained a group of pigs to allow us to collect blood from the vena cava in a five-inch stick, uh, blind stick, one inch from the heart. How long do you think it took us to teach that? It actually took an average of 60 minutes per animal. It's rounded a little bit. I think it was literally 62 minutes. 60 minutes per animal. And what reinforcer did we use? We used the intermediate bridge, the terminal bridge, and flat orange soda, as well as praise. Okay, so we had three secondary reinforcers and one primary reinforcer, the flat orange soda. And by applying those skillfully, we were able to create this behavior that looked very bothersome and aversive and stressful to the animals. And not only did they learn it and learn it very quickly, but they also learned it in totally voluntary conditions. So initially we believed that we would need a squeeze cage. So we had a rather sophisticated one designed and while we were waiting for it to be delivered, we accidentally trained all the pigs. So that's how quick it was. And previously, the pigs would scream and struggle and fight against the person restraining their nose or rostrum so that the vet could safely take the blood. Now, when I say safely take the blood, I'm not worried about the vet safety in this case. I'm worried about the fact that if the pig moved and the vet accidentally nicked the vagus nerve, the pig could drop dead on the spot. And we did not want that to happen to any of our pigs. And as a matter of fact, that's how the intermediate bridge came into being because I wanted to be sure that with this behavior that required the animal to target for an extended period of time. He had to stay on a target while we inserted the needle and collected the blood. And as I said, uh, if he moved in a certain way, we could end up nicking his vagus nerve, which would be fatal. So we wanted him to hold very still. In other words, we didn't want to feed him food luring out of the question totally out of the question, but it always is for me anyway. So what, what you will see in the video is the head tech, the manager of the swine unit, is holding a Nalgene lab bottle. 
filled with flat orange soda. And if you don't watch carefully, you might think that the pig is drinking flat orange soda from that bottle as the blood is being taken. But you would be wrong. So look at it again. Because Benny did not want this pig to be moving its throat and trying to drink. And the reason he set things up the way that he did is because if you remember from the before video, there were three adults involved in this procedure. So one person restrained the pig using a, a snout snare. One vet collected the blood using a five inch needle and another person assisted, and this was often another vet, handing them the uh, collection vials and, you know, taking back the blood samples, handing the needles and syringes, all that kind of thing. Because the vet has to stay really focused on the actual collection site. And it, it's not the easiest um, collection site anyway, because it's what we call a blind stick. There aren't obvious um, landmarks to tell you, oh, go right between you know, this point and this point, and you'll be able to hit the blood vessel you want. It's not like that. Okay, so we thought this was going to be horribly difficult because the animals that were not trained to cooperate with this behavior seemed to be very distressed and resistant to it. And they protested noisily. However, it turns out that when you present the opportunity differently, it changes the way the animal looks at it. And it changes the response the animal has. And that's why this process is called perception modification. We're changing the animal's perception. And when we did this, not only did we teach it in about an hour for animal, but we did have one problem. And that problem was that every animal wanted to be first. So they had to go through and teach them their names in addition and to teach them not to, you know, crowd in or anything. They had to politely wait their turn because just like you didn't want the pig trying to actually suck liquid during this procedure, you also didn't want them being um, badgered or harassed by another pig that would cause them to recoil or spin around or something like that and possibly nick their vagus nerve. So we had to be sure that all the pigs were respectful of one another and awaited their own turn. And how did we do? Well, you do not have to take my word for it because when you watch that video, you can see a second pig right behind Benny's shoulder and he is quietly awaiting his turn. There's the proof of it right there. So, we changed the perception 
of the pigs from this event or to this event. And how did we do that? Well, before I tell you how we do it, I'm going to tell you something else that might arouse your indignation or at least your doubt. And that is that a good trainer can create reinforcers out of things an animal doesn't like and diminishers out of things an animal does like. So if you have seen somebody say that a reinforcer is something that an animal desires that increases the frequency. Actually, if they say that, they're probably going to also say increases the probability. And so two down, you're out. Um, but if you, oh, dang it, guys, I just lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, all these, all these people will start out instructions on training by saying something like, start with a highly valued reinforcer. What? There is no such thing. You cannot go to the store and buy a great reinforcer. A reinforcer is skillfully applied in the moment. So that is, first of all, contingent to the behavior you want to affect. And secondly, has that desired effect on the behavior. So it has to be next to the behavior and it has to influence it in the direction you intend. The animal may love something and willingly eat a lot of it and may not actually effectively change its behavior. Now, if you want to talk about a really obvious case for that, let's say you were testing an animal's cognition and you were rewarding him with alcohol. At some point, the alcohol is going to impair the cognitive performance. No matter how smart the animal is, he will not demonstrate his full ability and intelligence because the alcohol is physically diminishing his ability to do that. Doesn't mean that the animal didn't like the alcohol. It just means that liking it is not the critical thing. In fact, in the definition I gave you, whether or not the animal likes something doesn't count at all. And I said that if you're really good at your craft, then you can switch reinforcers so fast that it's blinding. You can take something an animal likes and make it so he doesn't like it. And you can take something an animal doesn't like and make it desirable to that animal. Now, in 
discussing this with other trainers. I had a wonderful discussion a little bit ago with a talented up-and-coming trainer. And I gave an example, and I'm actually really sorry. I'm going to have to think about this. And I'll, and I'll tell you the exact example I used. And in the comments, help me come up with better options. But I wanted to pick something believable. So let's take something you don't like. Let's say I step on your foot when I walk too close. And pretty soon, I predict you would avoid. You'd avoid me when I was walking toward you. Why? Maybe you don't like your foot stepped on. So you're going to act on the environment. You're going to operate on the environment to diminish your foot getting crunched by me. I believe I could change that in a matter of seconds. Now watch how I do this. This is very important. And it's why most trainers can't change it. If I tell you, see that man over there? He bet me $2,000 that you would not let me step on your foot. In fact, he bet me $1,000. And I told them not only can I step on their foot, but they will smile when I do it. But you're on for $2,000. And so the man says, okay, I'll pay you $2,000. If that person will let you stand on their foot and they smile in return. So I go to the other person and I say to them, this man just bet me $2,000. And if you'll let me step on your foot and you will smile at me, we will get $2,000 and I'll split it with you. Are you in? Would you be in? I would. They could stand right on my foot. I'd be looking forward to that $1,000. Now let's take another example. Let's say you hate to be called stupid. You just hate that word. But you have a car that you just loved. You just love this car. And I come up to you and I say, I have your car. When you go home, you will not see it. If you want to see your car again, you need to clean this floor and I will give you feedback on how well you're doing by telling you you're stupid when I like the job that you do and when you get 10 stupids then you will be able to go get your car now are you looking forward to hearing me call you stupid? If so, why? And if not, why? If it were me, I'd be looking forward to it. 
I'd want to get those stupids out of the way and get my car back. So why can I do this and most trainers cannot? And the reason is that most trainers do not develop the language abilities required with their animals. They literally tell you that you shouldn't talk to your animal, that you'll just confuse it. I don't know what they base that on because I haven't seen very many papers written about the subject at all. I'm here to tell you that not only can the animals learn the vocabulary, but they can understand the concepts and they can manipulate these concepts. You can meaningfully negotiate with them with if-then statements. And you know what? I'm not the only person that thinks this. Vilmo Shani, in his book, oh man, it goes, it just slipped my mind, the title of it. It's one of those books I cite all the time, and so I don't expect to forget it. Anyway, it's on the intelligence of dogs. And he says right in his book that the if-then statement is so powerful, he doesn't know why more scientists don't use it. When I read that, I fell off my chair. I absolutely agree with him. But until I read that, I had not seen another professional or a professional trainer or a behavior scientist or ethologist who actually used conditional statements. So what's a conditional statement? An if-then statement. What does it tell the animal? If you do this, you get this consequence. It is a tool of negotiation. And people just don't think that the animals can actually operate this way. So at one seminar, a lady had a German shepherd that had a hard time getting relaxed. And the dog wasn't interested in food at all or even toys. And she really wanted to go. She wanted to go walking to blow off a little steam. So I'm watching the dog and I'm talking to the owner. And I said, let's try this. Try telling your dog that if you get easy, I will take you for a walk. Now the dog's staring at the door. She's not looking at me or the owner. But I no sooner said that than she immediately lay down on the ground and put her head on her paws. And the owner exclaimed, wow, it's as if she understood what you said. And I said, take your dog for a walk now. The owner still didn't believe that the dog was following what I was saying. Even though the evidence is there plain as day. Her own beliefs about the limitations of the dog were clouding her ability to see and interpret the direct evidence. 
Now, I'm not faulting her. You know, it's a surprising thing. We're told by other professionals that the dogs can't do this. I'm telling you, I'm a professional. I'm telling you, they can do it. So suspend disbelief, put it to work, and see what your results are. But if you want to be able to reframe a situation, you must be able to give the animal very specific information. And it needs to know what you want in return for a certain consequence. And that's the offense statement. Now let's talk about the reinforcers that we use and why and how they're reinforcing. And in reality, SATS training kind of throws operant conditioning on its nose. And here's what I mean by that. In, in the Sinalia training system, which we call SATS for short, the first thing we teach the animals is the terminal bridge, then the intermediate bridge, and then the two-finger target. It takes me less than a minute to teach all three of those. If I don't teach the intermediate bridge, if I just teach the terminal bridge, or if I don't even teach the terminal bridge and I just start applying the intermediate bridge without any preconditioning, it still functions as a reinforcer in the majority of the cases. I can't guarantee ahead of time that it's going to be a reinforcer, but it mostly is. And when I say it mostly is, even though the intermediate bridge is technically a tertiary reinforcer, if a primary reinforcer is something that is inherently or innately reinforcing, like food, then a secondary reinforcer is conditioned to be desired because it's associated with food. And a tertiary reinforcer is conditioned to be desired because it's associated with a secondary reinforcer. So an intermediate bridge is technically a tertiary reinforcer. But it turns out when it's used a certain way, it seems to be a primary reinforcer. And we get reports from the, of this from all over the world. And most recently, I saw it in a conversation amongst a group of Polish trainers. And Sylvia Machalewska had published some videos of teaching dogs using intermediate bridges. And a number of the people that were in her community in her conversation exclaimed that their dogs that had never been conditioned for the intermediate bridge, in fact, they never encountered an intermediate bridge, 
and they were not taught about it at the point when this happened. But as soon as they heard that intermediate bridge, their heads popped up, their tails started wagging, and they often would come over to the computer screen. And I've heard that in the U.S., all over the U.S. from various trainers uh, during classes. If I start to demonstrate a bridge, dogs in the class will often respond and they'll come over to see what I'm doing and so forth. But I even saw this happen when I delivered a presentation in person at Dr. Daniel Mills lab at Lincolnshire. And he has a group of loyal trainers who often participate in his research or did at that time. And there were at least six of them there, I believe on that day. And I was showing videos of various animals working. And then I went to demonstrate the intermediate bridge, what it actually sounded like. So you don't need to be in suspense. It sounds like this. Or X. It's not a set phrase. It is actual feedback that as the animal starts to do something, we give him feedback on whether or not he's correct. So even if the behavior is long and complicated, he doesn't have to wonder how he's doing. Instead, we give him a steady stream of feedback to confirm that he is headed for success. So that's how the intermediate bridge can be used, or that's one of the ways. And I already told you we condition it in association with the secondary reinforcer and food. But these particular dogs had never been conditioned to an intermediate bridge. They never even heard one before. I didn't condition them at this class. But when I started giving the intermediate bridge, all of a sudden, a whole group of dogs came and stood right in front of me, staring intently into my face and wagging their tails. I think it was a little consterning to the owners. We kind of probably didn't know what to make of it. But what does that tell us about the intermediate bridge? If the animal is showing Okay, in this case, I have to be careful. In this case, did I have a target behavior? No, I didn't have a target behavior. I didn't ask these animals to do anything. I didn't do anything to try to influence their behavior directly. They tried to influence my behavior. When they heard the intermediate bridge, they came and stood in front of me as if they were hoping to get a treat or recognition or to be part of the conversation. It was really great. It's amazing. 
And I see it all the time with horses as well. But I had not asked them to come over. I in no way cued them. So I even think I know why the intermediate bridge has this property. And I won't go into it today, but I'll just say, I think it has to do with the Schumann residence. And if you care to read about the Schumann residence, you might be able to figure out what I think it is without me explaining it to you. So when we're training animals, we have the bridges, the terminal and the intermediate. And the intermediate is so strategic. I've had many trainers say that they saw no reason to use an intermediate bridge because it was redundant. It was unnecessary. It cluttered the field. It doesn't. It certainly doesn't need to do that. But what it does is it diminishes latency, which is the animal's hesitation to follow a cue. It will enhance whatever trait is targeted. So you can get an animal to go faster or slower, longer, or um, higher or lower or whatever. It's one tool and it doesn't tell an animal to do any one of those things. But by how it's applied, it tells the animal to do more of this thing. So there again, the contingency is so critical. If your timing is not up to snuff, you need to go work on that because you're not going to be able to accomplish what's possible with these tools. Okay, in addition to the intermediate bridge, we have name and explain. Name and explain is simply information. It's critical information. We tell the animal what we wanna do, how we wanna do it, how long, where, who else will be there, why it's important, whether or not it will hurt. And what we find over and over again is this information does so much to improve the training. First thing it does is it diminishes the arousal of the animal. When the animal has something to think about, he is less likely to get emotional or aroused that's the first thing but also you remove the uncertainty under the uncertainty is a very uncomfortable emotion i think secondary only to fear so if the animal is not quite sure of what you want he'll hesitate to perform the requested behavior if you start in with an intermediate bridge, many times they'll just snap right into the behavior. 
Now, there's a lot more to say about the Intermediate Bridge, and we have other podcasts on it, but suffice it to say that it has at least 13 different functions. This is a really versatile tool in the hands of an accomplished trainer. Now, we have the intermediate bridge, which is feedback, and the terminal bridge, those are both feedback. And we have name and explain, which is information. You're gonna tell the animal what you're doing. And there is an element in both the delivery of the feedback and also the delivery of the information that's very important. And that is fluency. You need to be able to deliver information at the speed of communication. If you've ever listened to people speaking a foreign language, you will probably recall that that's a pretty fast speed. When you're first learning a, a foreign language, you're lucky if you can catch a word here and there. And as you you know, go, oh, wow, great. I know that word. It means danger. And then you have to go, gee, I wonder what else he said after that. Because I didn't, I was so busy thinking about that one word. I didn't hear the next 10 words. So it's an investment of time and effort to become fluent. Where you can think about what you want to say and deliver it to the animal at a speed that supports that animal being engaged with you. And that is the speed of fluency. One of my favorite um, Chad Mackin stories is that he took the video of me working with a rhino and he took it to the board of directors at IACP. I was being considered to be a keynote speaker for their conference. And he said to him, he said to them in his inimitable way, I didn't really see any training going on, but I saw some cool stuff happening with a rhino. And the reason that Chad didn't see any training going on is because it doesn't look like training. It looks like a conversation with a rhino, which is what it is. Training is at least 90% communication, effective communication. And the rest of it is motivation. And to motivate an animal, you have to get them interested. And maybe you get them interested because they really want the food you're handing out. Or maybe you get them interested because your ideas are interesting and challenging and fun. Or maybe they're interested because they love the flow and the rhythm. They love being in the flow and walking that talk with you. And all of that requires fluency. And then finally, we use all those tools to directly negotiate with the animals. If you will do this for me, I will do that for you. And you see, I didn't have to come with a pocket full of treats. 
In fact, with my horse, sometimes I had a problem at the stable because maybe I ran out of treats or I dropped them or there was some urgent situation that I had to use them before our training session. I could go to my horse and say, I don't have treats today. Could we just do this work? And then I will take you out grazing. And I'd ask her for a yes or no answer. And she would almost always say yes. And she would cooperate. We would do all the things that we were doing. And then we would go out grazing together and talk and be there together and have a nice time. And guess what? If she didn't say yes, I just went back to the negotiation board. Okay, what if I let you graze and I take you out for a walk? What if I let you graze and I bring Fedora with us for a walk? How about if I let you graze and I let Fedora graze also? Or do you want to graze or do you want to go for a walk? Would you rather go for a walk? Or would you rather play with a jolly ball or whatever? I can offer anything or any combination of things. And I don't have to carry them around in a little cup around my waist. I don't have to worry about running out of them. And I can tailor my reinforcers to be especially meaningful to that particular animal. And one of the things you have to think about in the management of reinforcers is the fact that it's not a static thing. So to give you an example, if I say to you, if you help me clean my garage, spick and span, I will make you the best hot fudge sundae you have ever had. So you do, and I do. And I have now a sparkling clean garage and we're sitting down to the best hot fudge sundae ever invented. And we no sooner eat it up and I think, oh man, I need to clean the attic. And I say to you, if you help me clean my attic, I will make you the best hot fudge sundae that you have had since this last one. And what's going to happen? Are you likely to want to go clean my attic for that reward? And I suspect you wouldn't. And even if you said you would do that, I suspect you probably wouldn't be able to eat the second Sunday. Maybe you would. But the fact is, is that the second Sunday is not going to have the same leveraging ability, uh, the same leverage ability that the first one did because you're satiated on hot fudge Sundays at that time. You're no longer hungry and you're no longer hungry for a hot fudge Sunday in particular. When you start realizing that as we use 
three. I got a mosquito here. I think I got him. If you have a reinforcer and you use it, you're actually degrading it as you go. Like, you know, you start out to train um, sea lions and they're going to get their food, whether they cooperate in training or not. But nonetheless, we feed them during training sessions a lot of the time. So let's say you have an eight pound bucket for a sea lion and it's cut up into little tiny fish pieces. And now you're going to ask the sea lion to do a series of things and you're going to throw him fish or eat or hand him a fish for each thing he does. And sometimes you'll hand him some extra fish and sometimes you'll skip some, you know, fish. But even though this is his normal amount of food, I had to be certain that I delivered the entire bucket within about 15 minutes, 20 minutes at the most. Because even if this sea lion wants all this food and even needs it every day, and I don't intend to withhold it, if I take too long, his blood sugar will go up and he will lose interest in that food. So the very fact that I'm feeding him is destroying his interest in the food. Now with sea lions, that's not so obvious. They usually have so much interest in food that you've got some to play with. But with other animals, it's much more touch and go. With cats, for example, with African elephants. And so I'm better off if I don't have to rely on food. So what can I rely on instead? I can rely on, I'm thinking of how to describe this to you. I create games. I create a culture with my animals that's specific to us. Nobody else can come in and mess with it because they're not part of it. They don't know the words and the cues and everything else, unless they're part of our training program, in which case they do, and they can use this with the animal. But for example, if I have a dog that wants to chase and eat cats, here's how it's likely to go. Hey dog, if you can manage your behavior and be easy, when we have a cat here, I will take you out cat hunting. And the dog will turn himself inside out to main, attain and maintain calmness while I'm doing cycles with a cat. And in return, his payoff will be, I will go outside walking with him and we will look for cats. But it isn't quite so simple and cut and dry as that. It's nuanced. It takes art. You have to be able 
to fluently communicate and skillfully frame things. So when I take a dog out looking for cats, I don't just go, okay, there's a gray cat, one point. There's a red cat, two points. If you find five cats, I'll give you an extra 10 points. No, it's not like that at all. It is, okay, Ace, you want to go look for cats? Remember that gray one that stays under the car? Do you think it's there now? You think so? Let's go look. I'll go with you. I'm going to look. Whoever sees it first is the champion. Here we go. Da, 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 da. And the dog alerts on the cat first. It's under the car. And I said, oh, man. Oh, man, you're so good. That isn't fair. I wanted to find the cat first. Da, 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 da. Okay, let's see who finds the next cat. Da, 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 da. The next cat, I'm looking all over the place. I just happen to notice it before the dog does. It's on top of the front porch roof. Ha, ha, ha. Hey, dog. Hey, dog. You are not such a great cat finder. I am the cat finder of the two of us. Look on top of that porch. And the dog is likely to go, oh, man, that's not fair. Cats are not supposed to be in the air. That is, not, you're a cheater weeder, Casey. Well, let's go see if we can find another one. Where's that red cat? Remember, sometimes we see him here and sometimes we see him there. Where do you think he is today? So as we go cat hunting, we're gamifying it. It's nuanced. It's a competition. And another trainer that's really investigated this aspect things is my colleague, Ivan Balabanov. And he has a video, you know, and he talks about the possession games. And I love this because it's an incident of convergent evolution. I've been doing games like this with animals for the last 40 years. So this is not something I learned from Ivan and he didn't learn it from me either. And we're working in very different applications. He's uh, focused on IPO and I'm focused a lot on solving behavior problems right now. But nonetheless, it's so incredibly effective. The animal doesn't just want a pile of food or a Frisbee. They want engagement. They want to like, compete with you and to try their mettle and to get recognition, to be seen as an intelligent, capable being. So where does that put us as trainers? Well, if you are willing and able 
to learn to become fluent with the communication tools of training. That would be the bridges, the name and explain, the vocabulary, the concepts, the mental mapping, the if-then statements. You have to be fluent and be able to deliver this information in real time at the speed of communication. And you have to be able to negotiate skillfully. It's an investment of time and effort to become fluent. Hey, maybe this will help. To say that you need to be fluent, it's to say that you need to become zen with it. It needs to flow effortlessly and without conscious direction. It's just how you live in that moment with that animal. So it takes work to get there. But if you can get there, you will be able to do what I often do. You know, at seminars, dogs often are aroused and tense and they either cannot or will not eat. And, you know, some of them, like they may not be able to use the treats that I have and maybe the owner didn't bring any treats. Can I train those dogs anyway? Almost all the time, absolutely yes. I just don't use food. So what do I use instead? I will talk to the dog and I will say, well, let's say they're not very food motivated. I'll say, will you do this for a molecule of cheese? Not a big piece of cheese, but one that's this big and the dog can't see the cheese. And he smells my finger and I let him lick it off. And he goes, wow, that is a very small amount of cheese. It's hard for me to tell there even is cheese there. Great. Are we on? And we'll go through and I'll say, oh, that was great. Okay. Can you do this thing? Oh my gosh. You did a great job at that. Whoa. Have a molecule of cheese. That's good. You want another molecule? Have another one. Okay. Now let's run up there and do this. That was fantastic. Can you go across this walkway? That was great. And now can you wait for five seconds while I go over here? One, two, three, four, five. Here, good, 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 good. And so it goes. By being fluent, I can engage the animal in our conversation. And it just inexorably pulls him along. That's a far cry from going, Okay, dog, come. Good. Heal. Good. Sit. Good. I mean, that can be what a real obedience session could sound like. But with me, it would be likely to sound more like, okay, are you ready? Okay, when I give you a target, can you come as fast as you can? You ready here? Whoa, that was so good. Now let's run. Come on, Ace, let's go. Wait, back, down, good, 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 sit, good, right, left, 
around, between, over, under, over two in a row. Good, good, good. You did it. Whoa. Take a break and take a bow. You want to do a victory walk? Good job. See the difference? It makes a huge difference in your training. Okay. So now let's review. Oh, I've got to tell you one more thing. Get, getting to where we apply this, it's so important in perception modification. Now, you may not be aware of this, but we do not use any food or toys or physical corrections in perception modification work. We barely even ever say, no, that's not correct. And we change the perception modification process is where we literally reconstruct the triggers. What used to cause an animal to get aroused will now cause them to get calm. And you might think that's counter-conditioning. It's got an element of counter-conditioning in it. But the process is full of additional tools. So not only do we not use standard, you know, primary reinforcers like food, but we're reconstructing the reinforcers that were naturally there to begin with. You know, the animal got all aroused because he gets to think about fighting a dog or eating a cat. And we're going to change that so that the dog just thinks as soon as he sees another dog about how to relax when he sees that dog or how to relax when he sees that cat. So we're going to change the perception and we're going to change the reinforcers. And we never at any point, whether before or after the change of the perception of the reinforcer, we don't use food, toys, physical corrections, and barely a no. What do we use instead? All of the things I already explained. And one more thing that you need to take the perception modification class to get. That is a proprietary secret. And it's extremely effective. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you find this really helpful and useful. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to go back and say one more thing. Earlier, when I was talking about I can change the way you look at something and take something you don't like and make you like it, and I can take something you do like and make it so that you never want to see it again, but I realize that we have to be careful when we do this. So the other night when I was talking with a colleague about this, I used an example because I wanted to make it instantly clear how powerful the negotiation aspect can be. And I said, you have a daughter, let's say I 
took your daughter and said, if you ever want to see your daughter again. And it bothered me. The, the other trainer didn't, you know, he seemed to just take it in stride. But later I thought that is not a good example. That could be a triggering or traumatic example because it causes a person to imagine a insufferable situation. So this time I use car as an example. Now, if you find that traumatic and would rather me use your children as an example, I'm not going to change back. You need to work on that. But if you love your car, but secondary to your children, then maybe you'll agree that that was a better choice. So as we're doing our negotiations, which are also manipulations, right? We need to hold ourselves in check and hold ourselves accountable. So first of all, even though I can conceive of that example, I have never been in a situation where I ever used or felt I needed to use that kind of a negotiation. I don't recall ever even picking up a baby animal and carrying it away in order to get an adult to follow me. We just don't operate that way. And neither do I take somebody's car and hold it hostage. But I use those examples so that they will be obviously, instantly obvious for how you could leverage something to change the way an animal thinks about something else, to change a reinforcer in a matter of seconds or less. So I just wanted to bring that up. We need to always be responsible, always have integrity, have respect and the benefit of everybody at the top of our minds when we're interacting with our animals whether we're teaching them or um, proofing or enforcing behavior or negotiating outcomes. So just wanted to make that little note. Okay, having done that, now I really will close. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending your time with me. Thank you for subscribing. It helps more than you might imagine. If you leave a comment, I will look forward to answering it and uh, or if you don't need an answer, I, you know, I just value your thoughts. Let me know what you would like to um, talk about or if you've got ideas of people you would like to see interviewed or something. Okay, folks, have a great day and take care and thank you. See you soon. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash 
C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.